Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book, so you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. It talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now a part of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Brian Haugen. He's a physician who's board certified. Uh, he's at University of Colorado. Uh, we're going to talk about endocrinology, diabetes, and especially thyroid disease, thyroid cancer, thyroid nodules, etc. So, Brian, thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me, Richard. Yeah, it seems like, um, you know, in the literature, thyroid conditions aren't really researched nearly as much as other conditions. What's your, I guess, your analysis first of, you know, like the whole thyroid world? Is it a very active world of research or is it rare compared to other areas? Yeah, you know, I think it, thyroid has um, had its ups and downs in the research realm when the what were called nuclear receptors like thyroid hormone receptors were first discovered back in the 1990s. There was a ton of research and it kind of then waned a bit, but I think it's going back up in the area of thyroid cancer and treating advanced thyroid cancer, also in how the thyroid develops and um, trying to find ways to potentially even make new thyroids for people eventually. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think the work is going back up also in the area of immune function and how the immune system attacks the thyroid and autoimmune thyroid disease. Yeah, I remember I had spoken to uh, a Russian scientist a couple of years ago, and they were 3D printing mouse thyroids. I guess they were so tiny and they 3D printed the mouse thyroid after, you know, taking out the old one. And I think they put it near the liver of the mouse. You know, I guess it has a lot of blood flow in the liver capsule. And they said the thyroid was able to happily hang out there and produce thyroid hormone for the mouse. So hopefully for people, that same thing can happen at some point. Yeah. No, they have. People have done work where they've been able to make it 
even just from what are called uh, uh, pluripotent stem cells that you take some skin cells or something from a mouse or now even a person and you can kind of turn them into those early cells and then turn them back into thyroid cells put them somewhere again places are near the liver or under the capsule of the kidney and they can happily make thyroid hormones so yeah that's hopefully coming well, i had my thyroid taken out in uh, 2017 i told the surgeon in 10 years i want my thyroid back so hopefully that'll be uh a possibility. We'll see. Right. A healthier thyroid back. That'll be good. Healthy, yeah. Healthy. So tell me, is your work all clinical or is it research as well? And what, what is the focus of it is, you know, thyroid wise? Yeah. So I do both clinical work and research. A, a good chunk of my time is doing research. And I, my focus in research is on thyroid cancer and actually trying to better understand and treat more advanced thyroid cancer. I think as a number of people know, most thyroid cancer is treatable with things like surgery and some other ways of treating it. But um, some people, maybe 5 to 10% of people have advanced thyroid cancer that needs other therapies. And so I do research in that area. And then I see patients with thyroid nodules thyroid cancer, hypothyroidism, things like that. I've spoken a bit on this podcast about hypo and hyperthyroidism, but not much on nodules. The way, you know, again, I don't want to make this about me, but the way I found out was literally accidental from a car accident. Do thyroid nodules have symptomology with them or, you know, how do people discover that they have them? Yeah, no, that's, uh, Richard, that's a very good question. Um, and what I always tell people, it's maybe a little oversimplified, but gives you a, an idea of the one third rule is about a third of the time the person notices it themselves. And usually it doesn't have symptoms. They'll just see a little lump when they look at themselves in the mirror. About a third of the time, um, someone else, a friend, a spouse, someone else will notice it. And about a third of the time it's picked up when we're doing imaging for other reasons, such as a car accident or, you know, somebody's looking at the arteries in the neck and then they see a thyroid nodule. So, so it, it can be determined many different ways. And it's really rare for someone with a thyroid nodule to first present with symptoms such as pain, trouble swallowing, hoarse voice. It can happen, but it's quite rare. And from my understanding, there's three major types of thyroid cancer. This is what papillary, medullary, and anaphylastic. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a papillary is part of what we call differentiated because it still wants to be a thyroid. And two types, papillary and follicular, are in that category. Anaplastic is the undifferentiated. And then medullary is interesting because it comes from a totally different cell type. It resides in the thyroid, but it actually started out in development in a totally different place. And it's called a neuroendocrine cell. So it really isn't even a thyroid cell. Okay. And what's the typical severity and progression of, you know, it sounds like four kinds follicular as well. Can you just step through the four and, you know, what they're like, what are the nuances? Yeah. So papillary is by far the most common. Uh, so upwards of 85 to 90% of people who get a thyroid cancer or diagnosed with thyroid cancer, it's papillary. So that's by far the most common and uh, fortunately, most people it's picked up, but it's, again, very treatable with surgery. It maybe spreads into the lymph nodes in the neck. But again, that still could be very treatable with surgery. And in some patients with a radioactive iodine, which the thyroid cells and cancer cells take up iodine so we can make them radioactive to give them treatment with radioactive iodine after surgery. And most people do very well with that. Occasionally, it spreads outside of the neck to places like the lungs. Um, but again, it's still in most people is very treatable even at that stage. So the overall survival for somebody with papillary thyroid cancer is actually excellent. 10-year survival is over 95%. 
Yeah, I guess it's one of the best cancers to get if you could say such a thing, right? Right. I always, I've, I've actually, patients have come to me and they've said that they went to someone else and they told them that they had a good cancer. And I always tell them there's no such thing as a good cancer, but papillary thyroid cancer is um, one of the most treatable cancers. So that's at least encouraging for patients. And follicular, which is very close to papillary, has a similar, it, it kind of behaves a bit in a similar way as far as survival. Overall, there's very good survival. Follicular does like to spread outside the neck more commonly though, and that likes to go to the lungs or even the bone. And um, and it is, does have a little bit more shortened of a survival for overall for follicular, but it's still quite good, still around 90%. Uh, medullary is very different. Uh, it does spread to the lymph nodes, but it can spread to the liver and the bone as well. And again, the 10-year survival rate is about in 60% range. So that is a, a worse survival. And anaplastic, interestingly, coming from the same cell as a papillary or follicular, comes from a thyroid follicular cell, but it's undifferentiated. It is probably the worst cancer there is. There's not another cancer that's more aggressive. The average survival from diagnosis for anaplastic is about three to six months. And, um, but, you know, fortunately it's rare, one to 2% of all thyroid cancer, and it tends to happen more often in older people, but it's, it's, as I always say, in our field, we deal with one of the more treatable thyroid cancers, papillary and even follicular, and one of the most devastating cancers, uh, anaplastic. Yeah, I think, uh, Judge Rehnquist, one of the Supreme Court judges had anaplastic, right? Uh, yes, I believe he did. Okay. What, you mentioned differentiated versus undifferentiated, uh, depending on the type of thyroid cancer. Why is that important? Why is it theoretically easier to treat someone with differentiated cancer cells versus undifferentiated? Yeah, and I, I think the main reason is in those words, differentiated means it still would like to be a thyroid. So it doesn't grow really fast. It tries to make, and is not very efficient at making thyroid hormone, and it takes up iodine so we can treat it with radioactive iodine. Undifferentiated, which again, anaplastic is the other term for it, basically means if you look at, under, at it under a microscope, you cannot tell it came from the thyroid. It just looks so bizarre. Um, and it doesn't like to take up iodine anymore. And it basically is now doing a fantastic job at growing rapidly. Um, so they behave very differently. And the treatments tend to be very different between the two because they're just so wildly uh, different in, in, um, in the way they progress. Yeah, from what I understand, radioactive iodine is a nice, very specific treatment for those kinds of cells because they're the only ones that take up iodine in the body. Otherwise, I guess you'd have to rely on more broad spectrum chemo, right? Right. And we do now have for all the different, those different types of cancer, including anaplastic, have what are called those directed therapies, you know, that uh, uh, can, they're, they're still chemotherapies and they definitely have side effects, but they're getting better and better. But um, radioactive iodine, which was first developed in the 1940s for overactive thyroid, was found to be able to treat thyroid cancer. And it is as we say, one of the early targeted therapies. Uh, what's the um, up and down sides of radioactive iodine versus a more broad spectrum chemo? The upside is, again, it's very specific for the thyroid. So thyroid cells, thyroid cancer cells, as we call it, it's kind of our magic bullet to go after those uh, cells because very few other cells in the body take up radioactive iodine. So again, it's a nice, very specific therapy that has relatively few side effects. Downside is the side effects. And most commonly, um, the second most common place it likes to concentrate is in the saliva glands. And so radioactive iodine, especially in large um, doses, uh, can damage the saliva glands so they can hurt 
in the short term in some people and cause severe dry mouth in some patients long term. It can also mess with the gonads in the sense of the ovaries and the testes. So it can sort of change fertility a bit, especially if you get a lot of radioactive iodine safe with lower doses. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And the biggest thing we worry about is it is radiation. So it can cause other cancers to develop because of it being radiation. Fortunately, that's super rare. But what we always say is we want to make sure that the benefit far outweighs the risk when we choose to use radioactive iodine. No, that's, that's good. It is a weird feeling. I've taken it myself. You go in the little room and there's these two pills or pill that sits there and they look normal, just like pills. And you eat them and then you, I know you wonder because you can't really see or hear or feel anything yep. uh, for the most part. It's just a very strange effect. You feel like, um, I don't know, a walking ghost or do you, you just feel strange that like you have a secret no one knows about? It's weird. Right. And they tell you to stay away from people and don't share yep. things. And yeah, yeah. Even sometimes I've had patients tell me that when the technicians or whoever come in, you know, they may be wearing a lead shield and hand them to you, you know, in a certain way. So it, it does, it, people say it does feel a little strange when you get it. Yeah. Right. You know, I had, I was at home, I stayed in a room and, you know, stayed away from my family, told them not to hug me or anything like that for like, you know, I was trying to be real careful for like 10, 11 days. And I watched the, Chern the Chernobyl series while I had it, which was probably a bad idea. But yeah. Okay. Usually now with most people with radioactive iodine, you have to sort of stay away from other people for maybe two to three, four days at most. So because because most most of the radioactive iodine within the first 24 to 48 hours pee out in the urine. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I was just trying to be real careful. And they send you for a full body scan to see if there's any specks of it left in you and where it is. And yep. So it was, a, you know, not a great experience, but it was an interesting experience. So maybe listeners would uh, would hear that it's not too bad. You know, it was okay. Yeah, no, most patients tell me that it really isn't. They, it wasn't too bad other than being isolated and things like that. It, it really is. It's It really is quite a safe overall therapy. Maybe it's a weird question. Are there any benefits to having your thyroid resected, taken out? Or is it, you know, you have to take thyroid hormone supplement forever, but uh, is there any possible benefit or not really? You know, I, the one thing possibly could be that the most common thing you see with the thyroid as far as a disorder is underactive thyroid, hypothyroidism. And that most commonly is caused by the immune system attacking the thyroid. And it's, it's um, called chronic lymphocytic because of the type of white blood cells, thyroiditis, or Hashimoto's, what some people would know after a Japanese doctor who uh, named it uh, over a century ago. And in some people, there's a possibility that if you remove the entire thyroid, the immune system quiets down a bit, and maybe you don't have such kind of an autoimmune self-attack thing going on, and that could quiet things down. I don't think I've seen anything clinically that says, oh, I've had rare patients tell me that, oh, I feel so much better now my thyroid's gone. But I must admit, I think I hear more people say, boy, I feel different and different in not the best way that 
since my thyroid's been removed. So other than that theoretical possibility, I don't know of anything that would be like, boy, it's good to get your thyroid out other than removing the cancer. Only because you have to. Yeah. When you said some people don't feel right, what do they say? So they're on Synthroid or whatever hormone and uh, um, they don't feel right. What does that mean? Yeah. So what there is, and this is in my field where I see it is because we know that their thyroid was working okay, even if it had a cancer in it. Because if you check a blood test, a lot of times the thyroid's working okay, the person feels okay. And I would say 90% of the patients I see when they have their thyroid removed and we put them on levothyroxine, which is the generic name for something like Synthroid or Levoxyl. If we put them on that, they come back and they say, yeah, I feel fine. Some people may even say, yeah, I feel a little different, I think, than I did before I had my thyroid removed, but I feel okay. And about 10, maybe 15% of people will say, you know what? I've got kind of this brain fog. I'm not thinking as well. I'm tired. I don't, I can't exercise as well. I just, I don't feel right. Fortunately, many of them, if you give them two, three months, they do get better. They kind of get into a new normal and feel better. But I have some patients who lifelong never feel the same. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes when they've had their thyroid removed. And we have to try giving special types of thyroid hormone to them. And, and we're actually doing some research in that area to figure out who these folks are. Yeah, do you tend to recommend T4 only, you know, synthroid levothyroxine, or do you do like T3 only, or, you know, cytomel, or do you blend? You know, what are some of the nuances and the hormones that uh, you have to, you know, bring to bear when you're working with patients? Yeah, it. Um, I think the first thing, and when I give talks about this too, is the First thing we do have to realize is that when we remove someone's thyroid, giving them levothyroxine alone probably doesn't perfectly replace what their thyroid made because 15% of the T3 that's in our body comes from the thyroid. 85% is turned into T3 from T4 in tissues in the body. Um, So we're not perfectly giving them back exactly what their thyroid made. Now that said, most people still do fine. The advantage of levothyroxine is it's a once a day pill easy to take, and, and it's a hormone replacement. So that's, and most people do very well with it. The people who don't feel well, and I, we try to check for other reasons, things like sleep apnea, vitamin deficiencies, things like that can cause some of these same symptoms. We check for those. If I don't see that, then what I'll do is actually add in, you back off on the levothyroxine or Synthroid, and then you give in a little bit of T3 or Cytomelis, the one we use, and, and then we can adjust those two. So I do that in about, I'd say, 10% of my patients. Okay. So what is some of the current research about? What is it trying to figure out in regards to thyroid? Uh, so some of it is trying to, again, figure out who these folks are who don't do so well and levothyroxine alone. So there's research both in animals and in people trying to figure out who may need this combination. I think one of the challenges with the combination is now you're getting two different pills and to do it right, the T3, you need to take at least twice a day. So you take one pill once a day, one pill twice a day. So it's a bit of a hassle. So people are trying to figure out other better ways to do it. Obviously, there are some people researching, can we grow new thyroids for people? Obviously, people are working on things like hearts, livers, that are uh, probably more, uh, you, you can't live without them. One thing is you can't live without your thyroid by getting levothyroxine. So there's definitely research in that area. There's a lot of what's called molecular research where we're looking at mutations in either nodules or cancer to help us decide which nodules to remove, which can be safely watched in a patient who feels fine. Um, Also to say what kind of therapy would maybe be best for somebody with a certain mutation that 
causes their cancer or drives their cancer. And then another, two other big areas, one is immunology. So how does the immune system see the thyroid and see the thyroid cancer? Can we take advantage of that to treat people with advanced thyroid cancer? And then the final one is in metabolism. So how does our diet, how does our weight, how do things like that affect uh, thyroid cancer growth and progression? What's, um, why do nodules form? What's in them? What, what's happening in the thyroid? There's two basic ways thyroid nodules form. One is called polyclonal, meaning it's many different types of uh, cells. They're all thyroid cells, but it, it's just that it's kind of grown up like, I guess you would say, a skin tag of the thyroid. It's a benign nodule that um, just uh, grows, and it really isn't known exactly what triggers that. Used to be low iodine would trigger thyroid nodules, and in countries still that have low iodine, people have more nodules. Um, but here in the U.S. or a place like Japan that has high iodine, that usually isn't a cause. And then the other is, is monoclonal, meaning it probably arose from one cell that got a mutation, a driver or gas pedal mutation for that cell that caused it to grow up to form, again, either a benign nodule or a cancerous nodule. So the, how many different cell types are in the thyroid typically? And do the nodules look like the rest of the tissue or are they totally different? Yeah, so there are a number of, well, there are many different cell types in the thyroid, but the main two cell types related to the thyroid itself are what are called the thyroid follicular cells because they form these, what, what would look like a soccer ball in 3D and the cells would be the, out, would be the, the uh, outlining of the ball. And then inside is where the thyroid hormone is stored and then called for when it's needed. And th- those are the main cells that are in the thyroid. There are immune cells that are in the thyroid. There are what are called C cells that make a hormone called calcitonin. Those are the cells that can turn into medullary thyroid cancer. But really the predominant cell type in the thyroid is that follicular cell. And then that storage material called colloid is probably makes up most of the weight of the thyroid. That's just stored kind of waxy thyroid hormone. Thyroid nodules, for the most part, don't have that colloid or that waxy uh, storage thyroid hormone. They just have a bunch of those thyroid cells growing on top of each other. So, okay. The thyroid can still function normally with that, with nodules. Do the nodules work together with the thyroid itself to produce hormone and all the, you know, the endocrine exocrine functions or... Are the nodules kind of like wasted tissue at that point? Yeah, I think that's a good, Richard, that's a good point. I, I'd say the most commonly is there what we would call wasted tissue. They've just kind of decided to grow on top of each other into a ball of cells and they really don't make thyroid hormone. There's a less common type of a nodule, which is called a hot or overactive nodule. And the reason it's called hot is if you give somebody a little bit of radioactive iodine with a nodule, and those are usually, they have overactive or hyperthyroid, then you look and that nodule lights up from the radioactive iodine, not the rest of the thyroid. And it's an overactive or autonomous nodule. And that's kind of rare. Those are benign, but they're overactive. Uh, But most thyroid nodules are cold or underactive because they just are not organized enough to make thyroid. Do Do they start to crowd out the normal thyroid tissue? Like does the normal thyroid turn into nodules or do they just grow in addition to the thyroid? Yeah, normal cells in the thyroid would make a nodule, but in a vast majority of people, you could have a very large thyroid nodule and still the rest of your thyroid is functioning just fine. So they don't end up crowding it out. There are certain rare types of uh, thyroid disorders, such as what's called lymphoma, where again, those white blood cells form a cancer in the thyroid and they can wipe out thyroid function. But for the most part, papillary, follicular, even anaplastic, they don't crowd out enough other thyroid we need about half of our thyroid to uh, have, you know, enough to make enough thyroid hormones. So you can crowd out more than half of the thyroid 
and still have um, normal thyroid function. And when uh, the thyroid's taken out, sometimes half of it's taken, sometimes the whole thing, you know, what governs that decision? And what about the parathyroid and the thymus and some of the adjacent structures? Yeah, the thing that uh, it, I, I'll tell you that 20 years ago when I was doing this, 25 years ago, anybody who would have a, just a little thyroid cancer, we would remove the whole thyroid because the feeling was is you didn't want that cancer to come back and even give them radioactive iodine. And what we found actually uh, in more recent years over the past 10 years, a bunch of studies have looked at this, is that cancers up to two and even four centimeters, so up to maybe an inch to inch and a half, two inches, if they're well within the thyroid, aren't grown outside the thyroid, the other side of the thyroid looks good, you can just remove half a thyroid. And the cancer, the risk of the cancer coming back is not higher. And so they get to keep half their thyroid. So that's kind of a good thing. But it also comes to your point about the uh, parathyroids, which are small glands at the back of the thyroid that regulate calcium. And we get two on each side. If a surgeon goes in and removes the whole thyroid, and isn't careful, they could damage or remove those parathyroids, and then people have trouble regulating their blood calcium. And it's also tough on the bones and things like that. So taking out half a thyroid, you have two parathyroids left, even if the surgery didn't go well on the one side, and you still can regulate your calcium. The thymus is quite a ways down below the thyroid, so that usually isn't a problem in a thyroid surgery, but it doesn't affect it. They should make the joke, I had my thyroid taken out, now I've got a parathyroid. Well, again, I'm just being personal just to help listeners, but I guess on mine, um, you know, my surgeon took the, the parathyroid, which I guess she described as like little buttons, and sewed them onto some part of the neck, some part of the muscle or tissue. And she said they grow into the muscle and they can hang out and do their job, and they seem to have. So I guess as a, you know, it doesn't have to be taken out if the surgeon does it right. Yes. And most, again, the other thing that's very important to know about thyroid surgery is you need a surgeon who does a lot of thyroid surgeries. And what are a lot, probably a minimum of 20 to 30 a year, preferably 50 or more a year, because they're really good at, they can see the parathyroids. They can look and see when a parathyroid doesn't look so good. You know, yeah, it's still left in the neck, but maybe it's blood supply was disrupted. And what they'll do exactly like they did with you is they'll take that parathyroid out mince it up a little bit and put it in the muscle that has a good blood flow and it'll reestablish in most patients uh, blood flow and make and regulate calcium just fine. So that's something that surgeons have learned over the past hundred years to uh, help so that people don't have to be on medicine for calcium rate. Yeah, it's kind of like a uh, parathyroid transplant in a way. It is, auto-transplant. Okay. What are some of the other nuances of it? I mean, I can describe like after the, you know, I had what's called, a, again, I'm getting personal, but why not? I had a, a lateral neck dissection, so it had spread to some of my lymph nodes, and you know I had like this big cut on my neck, and I I had to do like uh, therapy for my shoulder to get it to function right. You know the nerves were saved, but you know thank God not cut, but still my shoulder function was weird. My voice was very diminished. So I ended up taking singing lessons to bring it back, and you know it took quite a bit of therapy and work to get it back to quote unquote normal. But what, what do you experience with patients after surgery if they have? the thyroid taken out or if they have like a lateral neck dissection, what do they do to help themselves? Yeah, no, I, I think so. Obviously when the thyroid's taken out, the central part of the center part of the neck, which is between the major blood vessels in, in surgery is called the central neck. And back in there are the voice nerves, what's called recurrent laryngeal is one of the voice nerves. And there's a little branch that again, the really good surgeons know how to try to identify and not harm called the superior branch that has to do more with voice um, strength so for singers, being able to hit the high notes or sustaining, for people who use their voice professionally to be able to sustain that, 
And it can be, it's pretty not uncommon to have that little branch disrupted. And that's what could have caused some of your voice changes because um, you don't have to just cut the main nerve. You can just uh, disturb some of those branches. In the lateral neck, there are a bunch of nerves that go down the shoulder. And again, usually the surgeon doesn't cut those, but when they're having to kind of look around and take out lymph nodes, they can stretch them. And that can cause some problems with people where they have shoulder uh, issues and they have to go to physical therapy. But you're right, voice therapy and physical therapy usually can help most people who've had some uh, degree of kind of irritation of those nerves. Okay. Any other side effects of having, you know, your thyroid taken out or, uh, you know, lateral neck or any of these uh, these things being done that people need to be aware of? Yeah, not so much. I mean, one question I get from a lot of patients, which makes sense, is they say they're, they're going to take out a bunch of my lymph nodes. Is that going to affect my immune system? You know, am I going to get more colds or am I going to be more susceptible to influenza or COVID or something like that? And they're probably the average person maybe has two to 300 lymph nodes in their neck. And we never remove that um, in surgery. Plus, there are many lymph nodes throughout the body that obviously help, again, filter the blood and filter out infections and things like that. And the spleen is our largest lymph node in the body. So the one thing I reassure people is removing those lymph nodes doesn't, there's no evidence that it affects um, how your immune system responds to things like viruses or bacteria. So that's not. Yeah, that's good. Has anyone studied what happens to the, you know, the adjacent lymph nodes that were not taken out? Do they enlarge to compensate? Can new lymph nodes grow? Has anyone looked? You know, that, that I know of, no lymph nodes regrow that I know of, that I, I don't see that there's any evidence for that. Um, the one thing unusual about thyroid and papillary thyroid cancer is when somebody has it like you did in the lymph nodes, there's a reasonable chance that there are some other lymph nodes that have small amounts of thyroid cancer in them. It's so hard for the surgeon to get every last little bit of it. That's where radioactive iodine can help in some people. But the other thing likely that happens is, is the lymph node is part of the immune system. And we believe in some people that uh, even though you're leaving little deposits of cancer in some lymph nodes, the immune system is probably taken care of. So the lymph nodes don't necessarily swell, but they will activate their cells and kill the cancer in a number of people. Oh, do they do that in the absence of the radioactive iodine or are they facilitated by that or or after a treatment with that, the, uh, the the cancer cells are weakened enough where the immune system can pick them up? You know, probably a bit of all of what you just said. So there is some, probably some effect of the radioactive iodine because it can then kill some of those cells. And when cells die, the immune system can will recognize them and help clean them up. But I do believe, because we're giving less and less radioactive iodine now, and we're not seeing more and more recurrences of thyroid cancer. So I think people's immune system anyway is always under surveillance looking for those cancers. And when they get into lymph nodes and some people just cleaning them up. It's another reason we believe that people, as they get older, if you get your cancer diagnosed when you're older, your outcome is worse than it is in a younger person. And it possibly could be that the older people's immune system just isn't quite as robust as the younger people's. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Has anyone looked to see if there's a localized microbiome around the thyroid? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think so, just because obviously where it is in the neck and it's not, it's, a, it's in a pretty sterile place. So I don't think, I mean, obviously viruses and things can get into the thyroid, but usually through the blood system. There usually isn't kind of a, a little local microbiome that I know of around the thyroid. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering. What else is important for people to know? I mean, like one thing I noticed is a lot of these surgeons seem to be women in the thyroid arena and when I looked at stats, it seemed to be like women get it, you know, thyroid cancer far more than men. But I also see that it's on the rise. Like, what do you see just 
gross statistics, what's happening to this condition? Yeah, so thyroid cancer is definitely on the rise. And it's, I'd say 80% of that increase is because we're getting easier to do and better imaging for other things. And so we're just finding stuff that maybe otherwise wouldn't have been found. One of the best examples of that is in South Korea, they basically had ultrasounds that people could get for $25. You could just go get it yourself. Um, and if you heard a friend or a neighbor had a thyroid nodule, you saw it, we'll get mine checked out. Their cancer skyrocketed. And then when they stopped doing that, their cancer rate dropped back down. I think that's about 80% of that increase we see in thyroid cancer is just because we're finding it, what we call ascertainment bias. But about 20%, there are the large thyroid cancers, the aggressive thyroid cancers, those are also a little bit on the rise. And so I do think there's something, and most likely it's in changes in our environment. Um, you know, whether it be things we eat, you know, people talk about plastics and different things that are in those, and we don't know for sure what it is, but there's probably something in the environment that's also triggering this. But most of the increased rise in thyroid cancer is because that we're using ultrasound, CAT scan, things like that more and more, and we're fine. Okay. What's new in the treatment world? Like what's here or what's coming to the clinic in the next few years based on your observations? Yeah, so I think the newest area is treating the more advanced disease. And there actually have been a number of things that have now been approved that are are these what are called targeted therapies. And so what they do is they go after those mutations that are the gas pedals, kind of keeping that cancer growing and keeping it and getting it to spread. Most of them are in a pill form, which is good, um, but they still do have side effects. So we reserve them for people with pretty advanced disease, but they're getting more and more refined. So they're working well and they're having less side effects. The other big area is trying to harness the immune system um, to basically unleash it to attack the cancer. Probably the best example of that is in melanoma, is these immune therapies are really changing the way melanoma is treated. Uh, thyroid's a little behind on that because it isn't quite as immune, what we call hot, as something like, uh, something like uh, um, melanoma. But uh, we're looking for ways to harness the uh, immune system together with that. So that's on the advanced end. And then on the less advanced end, I think we're finding more and more ways to not necessarily do surgery on people. Uh, watch people with small thyroid cancers like they do men with small prostate cancers. Um, there are studies going on in the U.S. There have been studies in Japan for years showing it's safe in many people with small thyroid cancers to just keep an eye on them with something like ultrasound. So we're mm. backing off on the low-risk disease, and we're finding new therapies for the high-risk. What is considered small or medium or big in terms of uh, thyroid cancer? Is it the size of the nodule or what is it? Yeah, so it's two things. One is the size and that target actually is shifting over time. I think when you first start with that, you want to make sure it's tiny, you know, because you're just worried that it's going to spread or cause problems. Right now, the cutoff we use is one to one and a half centimeters is, is about the size that people will watch. The other feature you look for on ultrasound is, does it look like it's trying to grow outside the thyroid? Um, if it's well within the thyroid, looks like it's behaving itself, not growing, the lymph nodes look okay, they're not big. We, we and others um, are now monitoring those people and they don't have to undergo surgery, maybe ever, or at least they could maybe push it off for 15, 20 years in the few people where it does grow. Uh, but if it's spread to the lymph nodes and they're enlarged, or if it looks like it's trying to grow outside the thyroid, those people we still usually uh, suggest that they go to surgery. Okay, gotcha. So is the focus on better papillary treatments that are advanced, or is it more now medullary or follicular or anaphylactic? Like what's the focus of the field or they're looking at pretty much everything? Yeah, it's in all those areas. There are directed therapies. And again, they're directed less at now, less at the um, type of thyroid cancer 
and more at the mutations uh, that make that cancer tick. So we're getting more mutation based in our therapies, whether it be anaplastic or papillary or follicular. And so, and, and medullary has the same, it, it, medullary is driven a slightly different way, but there's a whole, nut, whole group of therapies. There's a first generation group of therapies that have quite a few side effects and aren't as specific. And now there's a newer second generation that are much more specific for the mutation that's driving that cancer, and they have far fewer side effects. Well, good. Okay. Well, what's the best way for people to, um, you know, if they feel like they have problems or they know they've had problems with their thyroid, they just see an endocrinologist near them? And, you know, um, I don't know if you're doing telehealth or if you need patients or, you know, people are local to you where that area is. What What's your recommendation here? Yeah, I th- you know, I think uh, it is always good to see a specialist. Now, a lot of Fairly straightforward thyroid things, especially hypothyroidism, where somebody's doing well on levothyroxine, they can definitely do that with their primary care. And many primary care doctors are very good at that. But if you're having trouble with that, you should probably see an endocrinologist. If you're having trouble, definitely thyroid cancer, you really need to see a specialist. And for people who have thyroid cancer or even thyroid nodules in cancer, probably I would recommend going to the American Thyroid Association website, thyroid.org, and you can punch in your... um, zip code, and they'll tell you members of that association who are really focused on caring for patients with thyroid disease, wh- where they are, and they can, they can give you a, a help with that. Obviously, yeah, we'd be anybody in the uh, Colorado area, Denver area, or anybody who wants to come to Denver, we're always happy to see them. We have a whole team of people. Well, very good. Anything else I should have asked you, or do you think we're, uh, we got quite a bit done? Yeah, no, I think we uh, had, a, had a good wide range of discussion. Well, very good. Well, Brian, thanks for coming, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.